Now take this message as it is. Seal up this teaching and hand it over to my disciples. As for me, I will wait upon the Lord, even though he feels absent, even though he has hidden his face from the family of Jacob. I will put all hope in him. You see, I and my children, whom the Eternal One gave to me, we personify the promise. We are signs of the things that God intends and will do in Israel. The amazing things that the Eternal, the commander of heavenly armies, has in mind. The one who is indeed present in Zion, our heaven on earth. Some people will tell you to ask the fortune tellers, to consult the, the babbling astrologers, to conjure the dead, to tell the living what is to come, but shouldn't they ask their God? Go to God's teaching and his testimony to guide your thoughts and behavior. Any response which disagrees with the word of God is muddling and wrong and not the least bit illuminating. The people will only be bedraggled and desperate, drifting here and there. In their hunger, the, the people will be infuriated and, and curse their king and God. They will look up to heaven and down at the earth and they will, they will only see gloom, anguish, trouble, and darkness. They will be driven out into the darkness. But for those who knew such hardship, there will be no more gloom. In times past, God humbled the lands of Naphtali and Zebulun. Later, he will restore both honor and glory to the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, to Galilee, the home of nations. The people who had been living in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the shadowy darkness of death, the light of life has come. And you, God, will make it happen. You bolstered the nation, making it great again. The whole nation has been saturated in joy. Everyone who lives in it is filled with delight at your presence, like, like the joy they experience at the harvest, like the thrill they experience when they gather the spoils of war. For as you did in the days when Midian oppressed us, you will shatter the yoke that burdens them. You will lift the load that weighs them down. You will break the rod of their oppressor. It's true. All the fabric of war will go up in flames. <laughs> the boots of the troops that stamped us down and their blood-soaked garb, it'll all be burned beyond recognition or use. It'll be a new time, a fresh start. 
hope of all hopes, dream of our dreams, a child is born, sweet breath. A son is given to us, a living gift. And even now, with tiny features and dewy hair, he is great. The power of leadership and the weight of authority will rest on his shoulders. His name, his name we will call in many ways. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Dear Everlasting Father, Ever-Present, Never-Failing, Master of Wholeness, Prince of Peace. His leadership will bring such prosperity as you have never seen before, sustainable peace for all time. This child, this promise of God to David, a throne among us forever to ensure sound leadership that cannot be perverted or shaken. He will ensure justice without fail and absolute equity always. The intense passion of the eternal commander of heavenly armies will carry this to completion. Have you ever had a day when you've taken an intense displeasure in your children? Such was the mood of God when he came to Isaiah the prophet. We'll be looking at a few chapters here in Isaiah, so if you have your cube Bible, we'll start here in chapter 1, but mostly be focused on 7, 8, and 9. The scroll of Isaiah begins... Listen up, heaven and earth, for the Eternal One has spoken. Despite all I've done, my children have rebelled against me. Oxen know their owners. Even donkeys know where their master feeds them. But Israel is ignorant. My very own, they ignore me. In other words, take a look at that passage. At the very least, God's children could have at least behaved like asses. God was preparing a terrible conquest on the horizon to be dealt by the cruel Assyrian Empire. And Isaiah would live to see his cities become ruins, his people's homes become empty, and his land become waste. Now, you've probably had bad days with your children. Maybe you've needed to send them to their room or take away their supper. Or if they're older, maybe you've grounded them from their friends taken away their car keys. But consider how vastly and utterly that falls short of resembling the mood and the responsive action of God, what he wielded against his children in Isaiah's time. For that, we need to look more like at what we saw under the Taliban evacuation or what we're seeing in Ukraine. Isaiah would go about naked and without shoes for three years in an attempt to warn God's children about the time that was coming to them 
the days when 200,000 Judeans would be marched naked and shoeless into exile, leaving Jerusalem behind them as the last free city of what had once been 12 mighty tribes. Imagine all of that, if you can. And now imagine if God told you all of these things in advance and commissioned you to blow the trumpet, shout the disaster from the rooftops, and go to every extreme, nakedness included, to warn people, would you do it? But then, imagine that God would give you one more instruction. When Isaiah musters his famous, here I am, send me, in chapter 6, he is told, make their hearts hard, their ears deaf, and their eyes blind. And if just a tenth survive, it will be burned again. That was the first mission of the prophet of comfort. He was not to go open eyes. He was to close them. He was to accelerate the darkness that was falling upon his land. With every word he spoke, hearts were to become colder and ears were to further seal up what might have saved them. And he was to do this until the cities were in ruins, the houses sitting empty, and the land becoming waste. And here we are today, feeling yet another cold drape of darkness falling over our land. Though the word is spoken, hearts are getting colder, ears are sealing up, and it is getting harder and harder for people to see. Meanwhile, the vision of our nation in jeopardy is plainly before us. The question of why God should deal with us gently is getting harder to answer. And the worst of it is perhaps those in our immediate midst whom we know and love, to whom we speak the word, but they persist to resist. In fact, it seems that every time we speak, the problem just seems to get worse. But I have good news, friends speak. Because as we look at this seemingly harried and hopeless ministry of this peculiar prophet Isaiah and God's word-resistant children, we see God doing a, a hidden work of wonder, a work that has already kindled a light that one day no eye will be able to shut out. Let us work toward that uh, wonder by first considering Isaiah the man. We remember that Isaiah was just a man. His here I am, send me, was spoken by unclean lips, very much like ours, and men do not walk boldly into a mission of darkness and hopelessness without cause for faith. Ask yourself, why did Isaiah not reject God's mission? Why does Isaiah say, I will wait for the eternal? Even though he has hidden his face from the family of Jacob, I will put hope in him. Do you remember what Isaiah said next? It's here that he introduces his children. You see, I and my children, whom the Eternal One gave to me, we personify the promise. We are signs of what God intends and will do in Israel. The amazing things that the Eternal Commander of Heavenly Armies has in mind. To confront his wayward children, God sends children, Isaiah's chapter 8, 7, and 9. Each present a child that personifies a promise. And it is on these three children and these three promises 
where I would wager Isaiah was able to anchor his faith and sustain his mountainous mission. These boys brought the prophet of comfort, his own personal comfort, and the three sons of promise continue to offer needed comfort to us today. Let's start briefly with Isaiah's younger son, the child of chapter 8. For those of us who are proud to carry the older-fashioned sounding names of the Bible, like Zephaniah or Amos, imagine if your parents had given you this magnificent name, the longest one in the Bible, Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. The name is no shorter in English. It means swift the spoils of war and speedy comes the attacker. It was a prediction of how events would unfold among Judah's northern neighbors. It was ultimately a prediction of God's intention to overwhelm and plunder his enemies, a theme that resurfaces again and again in Isaiah. A week before my return to the United States, which was just this last Thursday, I had a first-hand experience in tasting the swiftness of plunder. I had just traveled a seven-hour bus journey into the capital city of Kampala. My friend Alex was waiting to pick me up to take me to Jinja. As we pulled out of the bus park, four men of around our own age were settled comfortably in the shade of a wall running along the side of the road. As we passed, urgent looks overtook their expressions. They all sprang up, pointing and shouting to us. They jogged up alongside the side of the vehicle, making frantic gestures. While they were not using English, it was clear they had become greatly concerned about the state of our front left tire. They wanted us to turn off immediately. But Alex decided to risk moving toward a lot of many parked vehicles where there were several men in mechanical attire who appeared to be busily at work and looked a little more trustworthy. As we approached, they looked up and they also began urgently pointing and shouting and ushering us to park. In a few seconds, we were surrounded by a dozen men who were pouring out urgent warnings about our front tire. Alex got out, but he saw nothing wrong. He began to debate with them. But in the meantime, they had begun removing the hubcap and, in short order, a wire connection to the gearbox which effectively crippled the vehicle. Alex's words were not prevailing with our new friends. They wanted him to return to the driver's seat and test the vehicle by moving it backward and forward, but he was worried about taking his eyes off of what they were doing to the wheel. He directed one of them to do it instead. The man who climbed into the seat next to me greeted me and asked me what where I was from. The US, I said anxiously. Both Alex and I were becoming increasingly uneasy. The man's response was interesting, and it became the center of my reflections later on. Oh, he said, well, here in Uganda, we are trying to survive. He began moving the vehicle back and forth in five-foot increments, while the others were commenting and shaking their heads in extreme diagnostic displeasure. By now, Alex had called his friend Croach, a friend and also one of his parishioners who was his mechanic in Jinja. Croach had gotten us out of many mechanical messes in the past, and today would be no exception. Get out of there now, he told Alex, with heartache and tears, or there will be nothing left of that vehicle. It was very evident that Alex's conversation on his cell phone had become the fixed focus of every man present. Thankfully, the wire to the gearbox had been replaced 
in order to run the response tests behind the wheel that they were suggesting to Alice. He thrust 20,000 shillings into their hands, took the wheel, getting us out of there. Several men ran alongside us as we departed, speaking urgently, but we made our escape successfully. Croach told us to watch our backs as we left, as such men were known to follow vehicles with hopes it would become disabled and then be enabled to be hijacked. Indeed, the next day we discovered that one of them had suddenly put a very distinctive symbol in the dust of one of our doors. Within 15 minutes of our scary encounter, we were able to get to a shopping mall which had a, a security guard surveillance. Alex and Croach began to inspect the sabotage while I ordered us dinner. Alex and Croach eventually decided the vehicle would reach Jinja where it could be treated for the $250 worth of bearings and parts for the gearbox they had managed to pillage in spite of Alex's vigilance. But Croach told us, if you had let them get that tire off, you would have lost the whole vehicle. Poor King Ahaz didn't realize he was exactly in the same predicament. And he wasn't going to be so fortunate as we were. The Assyrian Empire was putting on the guise of friendliness, offering to fix his international problems, all with the intention of stripping Judah of everything it held dear. But King Ahaz also had a croach, offering him a warning. His croach was Maher Shalal Hashbaz, a prophecy that Assyria would move in for the kill. Yet the most interesting thing about Maher Shalal Hashbaz is that he has possibly been identified as an alternative name for the child prophesied in chapter 7, the one called Emmanuel, whose name we celebrate every Christmas. Both children were prophesied to outlive their enemies before reaching adolescence. If true, this would make Maher Shalal Hashbaz directly linked to Jesus. But to properly meet Emmanuel, we first need to meet Emmanuel's older brother. Let's go back to Isaiah's first son. Isaiah's elder son was called Sheer Jeshub, the child of chapter 7. In contrast to most of the scroll of Isaiah, Sheer Jeshub comes to us by way of narrative, and his story will sometimes show up in church during the Christmas season. The story begins with the very bad news of a foreign alliance that had united against Judah. When our royal house descended from David, heard that Aram was in league with Ephraim against us, the king was terrified. The news shook the hearts of the people like trees in the wind. So the Eternal told Isaiah to get involved. God sends Isaiah with his son, Shear Jeshub, to catch King Ahaz at the washing pool with this message. Keep your wits about you. Stay calm. Don't panic just because those two angry northerners, northerners threaten you. It's not going to work. What they determine is not going to happen. Now then, if you don't hold firm, if you don't believe, you will not remain firm. There is nothing wrong with your tire. This is a critical moment of decision for Ahaz, one on which both the freedom and the spiritual security of him and his nation depends. For in Ahaz's mind is a desperate scheme. He is prepared to sell his nation to Assyria and its gods in exchange for protection. It is a needless act because Isaiah has already been assured by God that Aram and Ephraim have been taken care of. And Isaiah is prepared to make him God's offer 
Ask for proof. A sign from the eternal your God. Go ahead, ask anything. Anything at all. It can be as high as heaven or as deep as the place of the dead. Well, imagine what Ahaz could have had with such an offer. He could have asked for fire to fall from heaven or the sun to stand still. He could have asked to see an army of angels surround his city or tombs to burst open and, and the dead to walk. Others in scripture have seen such signs. But never has such a limitless offer been made to a mere mortal, an offer to see anything at all. But Ahaz could not see anything at all. Nevertheless, that was what God had prepared to do for Ahaz in order to make his faith stand firm. What a depth of love God exhibited to Ahaz and his people. All of the disaster that followed might have been averted if Ahaz had just accepted God's offer. But Ahaz, characteristic of humanity, failed epically in a show of what might be taken as a facade of false piety. Ahaz rejects the offer. No way I wouldn't dare to ask to test the eternal God. The answer makes all of us shocked and furious, including Ahaz, sorry, including Isaiah. But he, Isaiah is prepared to offer Ahaz a sign. In any case, see, a virgin will conceive. She will give birth to a son and name him Emmanuel, that is, God with us. So Ahaz is introduced to the future Jesus Christ. Of all his signs, God provides Ahaz with the, his very best, his, his very own presence in the form of a child, word made flesh. And Ahaz rejects the offer. He rejects the good news. He has God's altar and the temple replaced by an altar from his new northern ally. And he has Uriah, God's high priest, do the installation. And now... Judah's vehicle is crippled. How many times have we replaced the altar in the days since Ahaz? But what of Sheer Jashub? What part does he play in all of this? Throughout the account, he says nothing, he does nothing. If he, Ahaz even notices him, we are not told. Why would God command Isaiah to bring his son if he is merely just to be a silent witness? Our first clue lies in the translation of Sheer Jashub's name. A remnant will remain. Sheer Jashub does not reappear in the story, but the washing pool where Isaiah has brought his son does. Thirty-some years later, as you heard in the text today from 2 Kings, the dreaded destruction of the Assyrian takeover is in full swing. Hezekiah has succeeded Ahaz as king and has rejected his father's alliance with Assyria at the cost of Assyrian invasion. All 42 of Judah's fortified cities have been demolished by the Assyrian army, and Jerusalem stands as Judah's last free city, the last standing city. And now it too is besieged. The land is in total darkness. The Assyrians come to this washing pool to make a deal, sell out your faith in God and surrender to us. After several deceitful promises, they shout up to the Judeans on the walls, do not listen to Hezekiah when he lies to you, saying the eternal will save you. The moment has repeated itself. 
Hezekiah and the last three Judeans again have a choice. Follow in Ahaz's footsteps or turn back to their God that their parents had forgotten. But have you noticed something? The cities are rubble. The houses are empty. The land is waste. And a remnant remains. All the conditions for the fulfillment of Isaiah's mission have come to pass. It took all of this. But now, eyes are ready to see, ears are ready to hear, and hearts are ready to soften. Hezekiah does not reject a sign from God, but desperately seeks one. He dispatches a very interesting message to Isaiah. Listen to it. Today is filled with hours of sorrow, pain, anxiety, and reproof. Children are ready to be born, but there is no strength to deliver them. Pray for the remnant that survives. Children are ready to be born? Does this remind us of Jesus' words to Nicodemus? No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. In the kingdom of God, the old ways of darkness cannot remain. Jesus looked at Nicodemus and told him to reduce himself to ash and start afresh as a child of promise. In the same way, the city of Jerusalem of Isaiah's day was finally ready to be reborn. Isaiah responds with a sign, and Hezekiah joins the prayer, Eternal One, our true God, I pray you, save us now from Sennacherib's conquest, the fate that all the other nations have suffered, so that every nation on earth will know that you alone, Eternal One, are God. That night, the angel of the Lord strikes down 185,000 Assyrian soldiers, and the king of Assyria flees, never to return. The Judeans awake to find the dead bodies, and no doubt they were swift to the plunder. God showed himself as Emmanuel. And so we understand why Isaiah writes so vividly in chapter 9, our beloved Christmas text, the people who had been living in darkness have seen a great light. The light of life has shined on those who dwelt in the shadowy darkness of death. And you, God, who make it happen, bolstered the nation, making it great again. You have saturated it with joy. Everyone in it is full of delight at your presence, like the joy they experience at the harvest, like the thrill of dividing the spoils of war. For as you did back in the days when Midian oppressed us, you will shatter the yoke that burdens them. You will lift the load that weighs them down. You will break the rod of their oppressor. It's true, all the fabric of war will go up in flames. The troops' heavy boots that stamped us down and their blood-soaked garb will all be burned beyond recognition or use. There will be a new time, a fresh start. You can imagine all the burning it must have taken to get rid of 185,000 dead bodies. Now, we don't have a Hezekiah today to pray on our behalf and help us to endure the darkness and to shut out the words of the enemy. For us, Isaiah has a different child. He goes on to write, 
about the child of chapter 9. Hope of all hopes, dream of our dreams. A child is born, sweet breath. A son is given to us, a living gift. And even now with tiny features and dewy hair, he is great. The power of leadership and the weight of authority will rest on his shoulders. His name, his name we'll know in many ways. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Dear Father Everlasting, Ever-Present, Never-Failing, Master of Wholeness, Prince of Peace. His leadership will bring such prosperity as you've never seen before, sustainable peace for all time. This child, God's promise to David, a throne forever among us to restore sound leadership that cannot be perverted or shaken. He will ensure justice without fail and absolute equity always. The intense passion of the eternal commander of heavenly armies will carry this to completion. Because this isn't just the story about Isaiah and his people. This is a story about us and a God who buries his people in darkness only for a measured time in order that he might burst out among us in light and salvation and to bring about an eternal reign from a world reborn. Amen.